Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here with you and to share some thoughts out of the Word of God. You know, for the last month, we've been in a series here called God versus Satan. And as I explained last week, uh, the reason why we're doing this series is because we want to get into the head of our enemy so we know exactly what he's thinking, so that we know exactly what he's up to, what his shenanigans are. And, and by understanding who he is, we hopefully will be able to experience victory over him. Now, last week, we began by talking about, uh, we were uncovering some of his schemes, methodea, plural. That there are methods to his madness. And um, I don't know if you remember what they were, but let me share them with you very, very quickly by way of review. His first strategy is to blind the mind of unbelievers. We'll put these up here for you. Second strategy, he wants us to get us to doubt God's word. Third, he wants us to doubt God's goodness. And fourth, he wants to discourage us. Those are four of the things that he works on constantly designed to draw people away from God and keep them out of heaven. That's his purpose. That's his aim. That's what he wants to do. Well, today I want to tell you about three more strategies. And so this is part two of uh, what I'm calling the devil's playbook. But before we get into that, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. And I want to ask you to pray for a couple things, one in particular. But before I I tell you what that is, I just want to say to you that yesterday was uh, Cheryl and my 28th wedding anniversary. And so uh, we were, thank you. I know she doesn't really want me to say any of this, but I just wanted to say just, I just wanted to tell you just how much I love my wife. And she is, uh, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, I couldn't have made it all this far without her. She is really the rock. She is my uh, best friend. And so, uh, you know, here's the 28 more years, maybe, or at least a few more years. I don't know how long, but uh, I'm just so very, very thankful for her. And, um, and I just wanted to say that. Um, I wanted to ask you to pray for baby Judah. Baby Judah um, was born October the 3rd. His grandparents, Gary and Stephanie Dio, attend our church. They were here this morning. <clears throat> Might still be here. Baby Judah was born with some heart issues and... Uh, Within a few days of after of his birth, he had to have a major heart open heart surgery to correct some of those um, defects. And so surgery went well. However, it has been since determined that he may that he has a severe hearing loss. He could even be deaf. Uh, and we're praying against the praying that that's not the case. We're also um, he's also not eating, so he has been losing steadily losing weight. And for a newborn. To lose weight. That is not a good thing. So we want to pray that God would turn the situation around. I think baby Judah really needs a miracle. And that's what our God does, right? He comes through with miracles. And if we can get hundreds of people praying for him, you know, that's, that's his fighting chance right there. We're thankful for the care that he's getting. But uh, if we can pray and bring him before the Lord, that will make a huge difference. And I know it's been very, very... Um, distressing for his his parents, George and Michelle, and of course for his grandparents. I mean, really all the members of the family. So let's begin our time in a word of prayer and just lift baby Judah up before the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Father, first of all, thank you so much for bringing us here together. It is so good to be at church. It is so good, Father, to take a moment to pause 
here at the beginning of our week to pray, to open your word, to study your word, and also to worship you. And Father, to be with each other. That really is a shot in the arm for every one of us. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for all those who are also watching us online, for those who are under the tent. And Father, we ask for your blessings upon us this morning. Lord, and we ask, we come together as a church, and um, none of us except for grandparents, Gary and Stephanie, have met. Um, well, I don't even think, know that they've had a chance to meet their grandson yet. But Father, we want to lift this little boy up to you. And Father, we ask that you would touch him Father, will you touch him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and God bring healing to him? Will you allow him to begin to eat and begin to receive the nourishment that he needs so that he can begin to grow and to get stronger? And Father, we pray that, you know, because you are a miracle worker, because you can do all things, because nothing is too hard for you, that we ask God that you would restore his hearing. If he's lost any of that at all, restore his hearing, allow his heart to heal, God, so that he can grow up to be a man of God. So, God, we, we turn to you in, de in, in desperation. Touch this little boy. And now, will you touch each and every one of us as we examine the devil's playbook so that we might know how it is that we can have victory over our enemy. So speak to us now, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, our dear friend Sherry Roberts, who is a missionary in Uganda, posted kind of a disturbing story on her Facebook page about an incident that they had there in Uganda that involved a demon. The story centered around a young lady uh, named Edith, who uh, they're familiar with because she had open heart surgery at their hospital. Sherry runs a hospital there. And uh, apparently that Saturday when this all went down, Edith was, was walking around somewhere there, perhaps in the village, somewhere there in Kampala, and she came across, across a, sh a small shrine of what Sherry described as witchcraft paraphernalia. And so she apparently stepped over it to get around it, and the man who was there was apparently offended by what she did. So therefore, he apparently cast a spell upon her and told her to watch for all the bad things that were about to happen to her. Well, that evening, young Edith, who was a very healthy young lady, began to experience an excruciating pain in her legs. By the next morning, that would have been Sunday morning, she couldn't walk or talk. And so Edith's mother called Sherry's hospital, and she spoke with Santos, who was the administrator there, and told them what happened because they were familiar with Edith. The mom also told Santos that Edith's father took Edith to see a witch doctor hoping that he can solve her pain issues in her leg. And when he couldn't help her, the father took her to a second witch doctor. Well, things obviously didn't get any better and got only worse. And so on Monday morning, Sherry was able to send a message to the mother, relayed a message asking her to bring Edith to her at her home there. Uh, it's called, her compound is called Graceland. And so she did. Edith uh, came with her mother and her father to Sherry's home. And here's a photo of them carrying Edith into Sherry's home. 
and she was crying and really quite distraught in a lot of pain. Sherry also asked three local pastors to come over to her house to pray for Edith. And so they gathered around her and prayed fervently for her crying out to the Lord on her behalf. And sure enough, God broke the curse. The evil spirit left and Edith was set free and she was fine. This is a photo right after she, the, the evil spirit left her. Now, the takeaway from that story is if you ever have an encounter with an evil spirit, call three of our pastors, Pastor Greg, Pastor Caleb and Pastor Dave, and they will come over to your house and pray for you. I'm kidding about that, but Sherry said that that ordeal, um, that after that ordeal, Edith's parents asked the Lord for forgiveness for taking their daughter to see a witch doctor, two witch doctors, and then they committed themselves to following the Lord Jesus Christ. So story had a very, very happy ending. And I just say, may God continue to bless Sherry and her ministry. Now, I think I want to share that with you because I think we tend to associate the work of the devil with activities just like this one, things that are more sensational, things like possession and hearing demonic voices come out of people. But I don't believe that the lion's share of Satan's work is focused in these areas. According to God's playbook, the Bible, Satan is more subtle and he is, and he is more understated in his approach. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Uh, you might pull out your Bibles and also get a pad of paper if you can to take down notes because we always cover a lot of materials and this will allow you to go back and refer to them later on. And you can also follow along on our South Bay Community Church app. But here's how the Apostle Paul described kind of the work that Satan does. He said, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. The word disguise here is a long Greek word. Uh, is made up of two words, so it's a compound Greek word. The first word is meta, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And meta means change. And the second word is schema, which is where we get the word schematics. And schema means shape or form or appearance. You put the two words together, meta schema, which is the word Greek word for uh, disguise, and it means to change shape or to change forms or to change appearance. And that's what Paul said Satan does. He changes form or he changes appearance. So he doesn't come to us, he doesn't come to us with his fangs bared and fire coming out of his nostrils, thrusting a pitchfork, if he even has a pitchfork. He comes to us metaschema, masquerading as an angel of life. Put another way, he looks like one of the good guys. He'll come to us looking like one of the good guys. Let me give you an example. In answer to the question, are we Christians, Here's how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints responded on their website. Latter-day Saints, LDS, that would be the Mormon Church. Are we Christians? Here's what they said. Yes, 
Definitely, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He loves all of us more than we can imagine. Does that mean we have exactly the same beliefs as other Christian churches? No, but we definitely consider ourselves devoted followers of Jesus Christ. All right, so stop right there. They claim that they are Christians. Mormons say that they are Christians. Now, let's take a look. Let me show you what it is that they believe. And I'm just going to give you a couple of them because there's too much and we could spend a whole month on this. But here's what they believe. Here's what they said, say about the Bible, for example. And everything that I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote directly off the official Latter-day Saints website. All right. This is not somebody's opinion. This is what they say. Here's what they say about the Bible. The Bible is a collection of sacred books written by ancient prophets and historians. These authors recorded the relationship between God and his people over 4,000 years. Their inspired words are what we know today as the Holy Bible, unquote. Sounds pretty solid to me, right? Sounds okay to me. Here's what they said about Jesus. Quote, Jesus Christ is God's son who came to earth to save us from sin, sadness, loneliness, pain, and more. Jesus taught beautiful lessons about service and love and performed many miracles while he was on earth. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary in a small village in a remote corner of the world. That humble birth fulfilled the hopes and dreams of all of all of us. He was the son of God with infinite knowledge and power, yet he was also mortal and susceptible to hunger and pain. The night before he was killed, Jesus retreated to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. There he felt the weight of every sin and pain known to humankind and suffered for every person who has ever lived. Afterward, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, mocked, beaten, and crucified on the cross, all of which he was allowed, to, allowed in order to fulfill God's will. Three days after his death, Jesus rose from the tomb, appeared to his friends and followers. Because Jesus lives again, we too will be resurrected one day. He broke the bands of death when he arose from the tomb that first Easter morning. Sounds pretty good. Sounds like what we believe. Sounds spot on, amen? Then they write this. Quote, the Book of Mormon gives additional insight and teaches about the role of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father's plan for us. By reading the Book of Mormon and praying to God, you can know about the reality of God's plan, unquote. All right, so the LDS Church says we need to read the Book of Mormon if we want to know about the reality of God's plan. All right, so what's the Book of Mormon? Well, here's what they say about the Book of Mormon. Again, I'm quoting directly from their official website. Quote, the Book of Mormon contains sacred writings from followers of Jesus. Just like God spoke to Moses and Noah in the Bible, he also spoke to people in the Americas. These men called prophets wrote down God's word. Their writings were eventually gathered into one book by a prophet named Mormon. All right, so who is Mormon? Here's who they say he was. Mormon was a man who lived in ancient America about A.D. 311 to 385. 
He was chosen by Jesus Christ to preserve and protect sacred records as well as add his own history and experiences to them. The records which he wrote and preserved would later become the Book of Mormon. All right, so according to their website, a prophet named Mormon presumably lived somewhere here in the United States around 300 plus AD. They say 311 to 385 AD. And he was entrusted with these sacred writings. Now, you might recall that Christopher Columbus discovered America in 1492, which means Mormon was here 1,100 years before America was discovered. And then their website says that 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after 385 AD, somewhere around 18, in the 1800s, here's what they say happened. Quote, church members believe that Joseph, that would be Joseph Smith, was led to a hill near Palmyra, New York, where he received an ancient record from an angel known as Moroni. The record engraved on, engraved on gold plates gave the history of a people who lived on the American continent during the time of Christ. And Joseph translated the plates in about three months, and the Book of Mormon was first published in New York by E.B. Grandin in 1830. So, John, Joseph Smith found these ancient writings that were given to the prophet Mormon. He found them in New York, translated them into what we call the Book of Mormon. That's how we got the Book of Mormon. And today, Mormons could consider the Book of Mormon, along with the Bible, to be absolutely authoritative. Here's a quote, a direct quote from their website. Like the Holy Bible, the Book of Mormon is the true word of God. That's what they say. It is the true word of God. Now, in addition, they have two other writings, the Doctrine and the Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, which they also deem to be completely authoritative. And this is what their Bible looks like. It's got the Holy Bible. It's got the Book of Mormon. It's got the, the Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. That's their moment. It's, I mentioned it's a pretty heavy book, right? And thus, the Mormon faith is based on these books. And so with that in mind, with that in mind, let me show you just a couple of things that they believe in. Number one, they don't believe that God is spirit as Jesus said in John 4, 24. Put John 4, 24 up here. It says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. They don't believe God is spirit. Instead, they believe that almighty God has a human body, right? He has a human body. The doctrine and covenants, uh, chapter 130, verse 22 says, the father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, Jesus has a body, we knew that, but the Holy Spirit is not a body of flesh and bones, but is a person of your spirit, all right? So Joseph Smith actually even went on to preach a famous sermon on April 17th, 1844, in which he said that God, quote, once was a man like one of us and once dwelled on earth the same as Jesus and they go on to say that it was only through his righteous living and persistent effort that he became almighty God. So God was like a man, but he became a God by his persistent living and or by his righteous living and his persistent efforts. Second, Mormons believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. 
They're not one. They're three separate gods. Again, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that there is one God. There's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate, distinct gods. In other words, bottom line, Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. Third, they believe there are three different levels of heaven. They believe in three different levels of heaven. The first level of heaven. The first level of heaven is called the celestial kingdom. This is at the very top. This is the celestial kingdom. And the celestial kingdom is uh, for Mormons who are married. So if you're not married and you're Mormon, you're not going to go to this heaven. You've got to be married to go to this uh, heaven. And not only that, you have to have, quote, received the testimony of Jesus, been baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and, and keep the commandments. If you do all these things and you're married, you can go to the very ultimate of heavens, the celestial heaven. Second level of heaven is called the terrestrial kingdom. This level of heaven is the second level. It is for unworthy Mormons, for good people who knew about Mormonism but didn't follow its teachings. And according to the scriptures, those who go into the terrestrial kingdom will enjoy the presence of the Son, but they will not experience the fullness of the Father. And then there's finally the third level of heaven, and that's called the telestial kingdom. And this is the lowest level of heaven. There's the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial. The telestial, that level of heaven is for everyone. Everybody gets to go to that heaven. According to the doctrines and covenants, here's what they say, quote, the inhabitants of the celestial kingdom will include those who are murderers, liars, sorcerers, adulterers, and whoremongers, in general, the wicked people of the earth. In other words, Mormons believe that everybody goes to heaven. Doesn't matter how bad you've been, doesn't matter how wicked you are, doesn't matter whether you have any faith or not, everybody gets to go to heaven. And of course, we know but that's not the case. Not everybody goes to heaven, right? The Bible makes it very clear who goes to heaven, who doesn't go to heaven. Finally, one last thing. If you're fortunate enough to make it into the celestial kingdom, if you make it to the very top, then you will become a God yourself. You will become a God with, quote, all power, glory, dominion, and knowledge, unquote. Here's what the Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 132, verse 20 says. Then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject under them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. And so if you make it to the celestial heaven, you will have it made because you will become a god. So that's a sampling. That's just a sampling of what they believe. There's so much more. Right? And it's all couched in very friendly terms, family-friendly terms. They claim that they're Christians. And so if you're a Christian, and I had this happen to me, two guys came to my door, and they were uh, wearing their white shirt, and their, you know, their elder, their names on name tags, and, and their black ties. And I said, oh, I'm not interested. I'm a Christian. They said, oh, we're Christians. We're Christians. Don't close the door. And so, oh, we be, I, but I believe in the Bible. Well, we believe in the Bible too. I believe Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead. We believe that too. And so they get a foothold into your house and then they'll, 
tell you about all those things. And so we, we, we look at this and, and so we, we'll, we'll sit down and listen to them and then they tell us about the Book of Mormon. All right. And so that's how they operate. Um, they're the nicest people in the world. And, uh, but they're wrong. Right. They're wrong. That's the problem. And they're following the teachings of demons is what they're doing. And Joseph Smith was a false teacher uh, along with Mormon. Moroni was likely a demon, if not the devil himself. Today, Mormonism is one of the fastest growing religions in America. And Satan is probably patting himself on the back because his strategy is working. You see, the fifth strategy, if you want to write this down, is this. He twists and he perverts the word of God. He twists and he perverts the word of God. And we see it even in the church of Jesus Christ, not the Mormon church, but in in Christian churches. For example, some of the largest churches in America, and and you would would be familiar with these churches because we hear about them all the time. Uh, You would be familiar with their pastors. Some of the largest churches in America are led by pastors who believe that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And he wants you, God wants you to be rich. And he wants you, doesn't want you to have any sickness. And if you're sick and if you don't have money, it's because you don't have enough faith. And they actually teach that. There are pastors in our church. Some of these same pastors also believe that you can be a God. Did you know you can be a God? You can be a little God. You can be a God. And that's, of course, that's all, all that's just heresy. And so I think the lesson here is be careful who you, who's teaching you sit under. Be careful which blogs you listen to. Be careful which books you read because there's a lot of deception out there. And here's a heads up. The closer we get to the end, the return of Christ, closer we get to the rapture, the more we're going to see this kind of activity take place. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.1, he wrote, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so people are going to fall away. That's the plan. That's Satan's strategy, falling away by listening to the teachings and the doctrines of demons. And that's what we see going on here today. We're going to see more and more of this with each passing year. You know, when President Kennedy was cut down by an assassin's bullet on November the 22nd, 1963, um, it brought our nation together. Whether you were for him or against him, it brought our nation together as our commander-in-chief was assassinated when an explosion in one of the oxygen tanks of Apollo 13 crippled that spacecraft on April 11, 1970. It brought our nation together as we wondered and prayed and hoped that that Apollo capsule would make it back to Earth with, with those three astronauts still alive. When the Challenger space shuttle exploded after liftoff on January the 28th, 1986, killing all seven members of the crew, it united our country in a shared anguish and grief. When terrorists claimed the lives of more than 3,000 people on 9-11, we stood together as Americans. And I don't ever remember a time when, when the people of our country felt more proud to be American and were willing to come together to fight terrorism. That's what happens when a nation faces a monumental catastrophe. We come together, we band together, we unite together. 
And then on March 11th, 2020, that was a little more than 20 months ago, the World Health Organization declared that we were in a global coronavirus pandemic. And since that time, more than 250 million people have been infected by this virus. More than 5 million of them have died because of this virus, including 775,095 people in our own country. That was as of this morning. 775,095 people have died from the coronavirus. Now, let that sink in. These are the people, these are people who would likely not have died if there were not a virus. That is more people than all the servicemen and women who were killed in World War I, in World War II, in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, in the Gulf War, in the Gulf of Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, and the war in Iraq. Combined, put together. More people have died in the last 20 months because of this virus than all the wars in the 20th century. I would say that by any measurement, this is a national crisis. This is a global crisis. Yet, this crisis has not brought our nation together. It has not brought us together. If anything, it has driven us apart. Right out of the gate, people, there were people backing Fauci. And then there were people attacking Fauci. Some claimed that there was no pandemic. Some said it was a government conspiracy. At the same time, we heard from people, some of the doctors and nurses who attend our church, who told us very early on how bad things were, how they were running out of beds, how they didn't have sufficient PPE. That's a word we don't even hear about anymore today, PPE. One doctor who works at a local hospital told me that during the height of the surge, they averaged multiple code blues every single hour. Every single hour, multiple people were dying. And this virus has literally ripped our nation apart. And then when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. With the shooting deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. And it once again brought to the forefront the issue of racial injustice and people took to the streets and it ripped our nation apart even further. And then there was the presidential election, certainly the most heated one in our lifetime. And the chasm in our country grew even wider as the election was contested, as the president refused to concede. And then finally, there was some good news, at least we thought it was good news. They came up with a vaccine. But then there were people who were unwilling to get vaccinated. And the pandemic raged on and has raged on with no end in sight. All this against the backdrop of mass mandates, vaccine mandates, and now people are being laid off from their jobs because they choose not to get the vaccine. And what we have here is just this burgeoning uncertainty and division all over the place. And there's one thing that we can be certain of is that this crisis has not brought us together. It has divided us and it has separated us. It has driven a wedge between us unlike anything that we have ever seen. And do you want to, who's, you want to know who's been loving every minute of it? 
It's the devil. Because the devil loves division. It is one of the strategies he uses against us. The first thing he did when he rebelled against God was he sought to divide the angels. And he got a third of them to join his side. When he was cast down to earth, he saw that Adam and Eve had a perfect, had a perfect union and fellowship with Almighty God. And so he sought to divide them and drive a wedge between them. And he did. And he's been doing it ever since. So that's your sixth strategy. He instigates, the devil instigates division. And he seeks to divide husbands and wives. He seeks to divide families and friends. He seeks to divide communities and nations. But his favorite target is the bride of Christ. It is the church. Two weeks ago, The Atlantic published a a troubling op-ed piece by Peter Wenner, titled The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. This is it right here. Wenner is a contributing uh, writer at The Atlantic, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And the thesis of his article was that the church is beginning to unravel. It is beginning to implode. It is beginning to collapse. Here are a couple of paragraphs from his op-ed. Quote, Bob Freiling, a former publisher of InterVarsity Press and the vice president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and evangelical, evangelical Campus Ministry, has been part of a weekly gathering of more than 150 individuals representing about 40 churches. He's heard of conflicts, quote, in almost every church, unquote, and reports that pastors are exhausted. Earlier this year, the Christian polling firm Barna Group found that 29% of pastors said they had given real, had given, quote, real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year, unquote. David Kinneman, president of Barna, described the past year as a crucible for pastors as churches fragmented. Winter goes on, the key issues in these conflicts are not doctrinal. Freeling told me they're political. They include the passion stirred up by the Trump presidency, the legitimacy of the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection, the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement and the critical race theory and and matters related to the pandemic, such as masking, vaccinations and restrictions on in-person worship. Wenner wrote, I know of at least one large church in eastern Washington state where I grew up that has split over the refusal of some of its members to wear masks, unquote. That was his article. And I believe he's on to something. To Satan's delight, the evangelical church may be breaking apart. And we have certainly witnessed the passions over some of these issues that people in our church have. But unlike the churches that Bob Freiling is in contact with, I can honestly stand before you today and tell you that we haven't sensed even the smallest fracture within our church. We haven't sensed even the minutest conflict in our church over any of these matters. Now, first, yes, Our pastors are exhausted. We're tired, not because of infighting. We're tired because we're just so overwhelmed with work. We've just got so much to do because you're keeping us busy. And uh, God is blessing our church as more and more people come. 
You know, Jude 19 says something very interesting about the root cause of division. Here's what he said. He said, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. They're the ones who cause division, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Let me explain what he meant. First, the Greek word for worldly people is sukikos. And it refers to people who have no self-control, who are dominated, who are ruled by their lusts and their appetites. In other words, they kind of, whatever feels good, they do it. Uh, worldly people speak out uh, or they act and speak out according to their flesh or their humanness without regard for God or for others. Another feature of worldly people is that they are devoid of God's spirit. They aren't filled with the spirit of God. Let me illustrate it this way. As you can see, I have a, a container full of ping pongs, all right? And let's say each of these ping pongs represents our flesh. This is our humanness. This is what we are. And this is the problem. Whenever we, we act out of our humanness, this is what, and our flesh, this is what gets us into trouble. Our flesh is what causes us to say things that we shouldn't say, and it causes us to do things we shouldn't do. This is our flesh. But uh, when we're filled with a spirit, uh, when we're filled with spirit, it, it changes everything. It changes everything about the way we act and the way we talk and the way we live our lives. So let's say, I got a picture of water here. Let's say the water represents the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to watch what happens when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Watch what happens to our flesh. I hope this works. Okay, when, we, when the water, when the Holy Spirit fills us, watch what happens to our flesh. It pushes out the meanness. It pushes out the anger. It pushes out the bad attitudes. It pushes out the hate. It pushes out the selfishness. It pushes out all these other things. Hurry up, go. It pushes out all these. There, see, it pushes it all out, right? And it replaces it with the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, and what we have then is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And that's how God wants us to live our lives. There's such a huge difference between someone who is worldly and devoid of the Spirit and someone who is filled with God's Spirit. And what Jude, alluding, what Jude was alluding to here was control. That's what he was getting at. This is all about control. Who controls you? See, if, if the Spirit of God controls you, then you're not going to be an instrument of division because of the things that come out of your mouth. It's all a matter of control. See, I don't believe that South Bay Community Church is breaking apart, not even close, because as we have observed for the last 20 months over and over again, you are a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. We've seen that over and over and over again. And that, and that doesn't mean that we don't disagree from time to time. I know that some of you don't always agree with all the decisions that we have made, and that's okay. We're going to have, a, with, with this many people, we're going to have differences of opinion. That's okay. You're going to have differences of opinion over the vaccine and, and mandates. You're going to have differences of opinion over who you want to vote for. And that's okay. But if you let your flesh control you, then that's going to lead to division and fights and, and tension and all these kinds of things. But if you allow the Spirit of God to control you, 
then there can still be unity even if we have disagreements with one another. And that unity is what's going to allow us to be a, a light to the rest of the world. If we are unified, we can be a light to the world. So we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we praise God. I cannot tell you. We praise God and thank God for you and for our church because we see you filled with the Holy Spirit even when you might not agree with us 100% of the time. And nobody, nobody ever agrees with somebody 100% of the time. You know, Cheryl and I don't agree with each other 100% of the time. But if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can get over our differences Right? And what unites and what ought to unite us as a church is not our politics. I could care less about politics. What ought to unite us as a church is our belief and our commitment in the Word of God, our belief and our commitment in Jesus Christ and who God is, and our commitment to His mission. That we want to help as many people find and follow Jesus as we possibly can. That's what ought to unite us, and that's what I see happening in our church. That, that is what unites us. So praise the Lord for that. Now, let me give you, tell you about one other of Satan's strategies, then we'll be done. Recently, I came across a clever story that was written by Geraldine Harrison, Kristen Maddox, that, that I think has a ring of truth to it. And I made some revisions in it to kind of contemporize it, but here's how it goes. One day, Satan called a worldwide convention, and in his opening address, he said to his evil angels, he said, we cannot keep Christians from going to church we can't keep them from reading their Bibles or saying their prayers, but we can keep them from forming an intimate relationship with Christ. If they gain that connection, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church, but steal their time so they can't gain the experience of knowing Christ. And this is what I want you to do, my evil angels. Number one, keep them busy with non-essentials. Two, tempt them to spend, overspend, and to go into debt. Three, make them work long hours so they're too tired to go to church, small group, or serve God. Four, discourage them from spending time with the family so their marriage and children will self-destruct. Five, bombard them with constant notifications, text messages, emails, and posts so they can't hear God speaking to them. Six, keep them so busy and tired that they don't have any energy to spend time with God. Seven, Draw their gaze away from Jesus by enticing them with the things of this world, like lots of money, houses, cars, possessions, and more. Eight, tantalize them with the beautiful faces and bodies on their social media pages so they will succumb to sexual sin. Nine, surround them with godless people who will talk trash to them and fill their minds with evil, evil thoughts. Ten, present them with opportunities to stimulate their minds and bodies with booze, pot, and any other substances that will make them high. And eleven, cause them to be successful to th and to think that they did it all in their own power so that they will become self-sufficient and independent of God. Story concluded. It's quite a convention in the end. The evil angels went away eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busy, 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 rushing here and there and getting nowhere. Did you catch the strategy that the devil uses in this modern-day parable? He instructs demons to distract believers in order to draw us away from God. And indeed, it is one of his strategies. That's your seventh strategy, if you want to write that one down. He distracts us in order to draw us away from God. And we see this strategy delineated in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. The parable or the story is told by Jesus is about a farmer who goes about and he sows seeds or he plants seeds on four different types of soil. The seeds represent the word of God. 
He sowed seeds on a path. A path is, a, is what people walk on, so it's really, the ground is really hard, so the seeds never take root. Second, he sowed seeds on a rocky soil, lots of rocks. Hard to grow anything on lots of rocks. Third, he sowed seeds among the thorns. And fourth, he planted seeds in good, fertile soil. And of course, that was the one that, that really grew. But here's what Jesus said about sowing seeds among the thorns. Mark 4, verse 11. And I, I it just, I'm, I'm reading the NLT. It just flows a lot easier. It says, other seed fell among thorns that grew up. And the thorns, the seeds grew up and the thorns choked out the tender plants so they produced no grain. The thorns choked out the seeds, choked out the word of God. A few verses later, Jesus explained what he meant. Verse 18, the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things so no fruit is produced. And thus, Jesus explained that this parable is about how Satan distracts us from God with the cares of this world, with the busyness of this life, with the lure of money and material possessions. He waves these things at us, in front of us, in order to get our attention, to distract us from God. 1 John 2.16 put it this way. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. This is all from the world, all this stuff. And the devil can use it to draw our gaze away from the Lord. You know, today, one of the biggest distractions we have is this thing right here. Every one of us has got one of these cell phones, and it is a... Who's calling me now? Hello? I'm in church. I'm speaking in front of everybody. Hey, call me later. Just text me, okay? Don't bother me right now. I got to go. Bye. You see, we're constantly bombarded by all these kinds of things, right? That was planned. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't for real. But we're constantly bombarded by all these distractions. And one of the biggest distractions is our cell phone. It is our smartphone. Let me ask you, how many times a day do you think Americans check their phones? Actually, I don't want to talk about this because I'm so convicted by it, but I, but I will anyways. How many times a day do Americans check their phones? According to the global tech company Assurian, Americans check their phones 96 times a day. 96 times a day, that's once every 10 minutes. And I'm as guilty as sin on this one. Cheryl would say amen to that. You are. You're guilty as sin. And we're, we're constantly on it, right? We're constantly on it. You know, when, a, when, it, when you go out to dinner with your significant other, what do they often do? They don't talk to each other. They look at their phones, right? They're there holding hands, looking at their phones. And it distracts you from having quality time with one another. When you have a meal with your family, so often, what do you do? Even the kids, they get on their phones and it distracts them from spending quality time with each other, parents with their children, children with their moms and dads. Well, in the same way, our phones can distract us and keep us from a pure devotion to Christ because we're always on it. And just as easily as you can access your Bible app or South Bay Community Church app, with one click, you can view sexual, sexually explicit content, Ad infinitum. 
So what distracts you from a pure devotion to Jesus? Is it the lure of money? Is it your obsession with possessions? Is it the enticement of drugs, alcohol, and sex? Is it busyness? You're just so busy that you don't even have time to go to church? Is it a lust for power or status? Is it golf and soccer and baseball and basketball and all those other things, even that you have with your kids? Is it some kind of an unhealthy relationship? Is it an over-preoccupation with your career? Is it video games? Is it Netflix? What is it? Let me close with this. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. Consider how precious a soul must be that both God and the devil are after it. You know, I never thought about my soul in those terms, but I think Spurgeon was right. God is after you because he loves you with all his heart. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to pay the highest price so that he would be beaten and scourged and crucified and to die on a cross for your sin. That's how much he loved you so that he can forgive you of your sins so that you can live with him forever one day in heaven. And you can if you simply believe that Jesus was who he said he was and he did what he said he did. That's how precious you are to God. The devil, on the other hand, doesn't love you. The devil hates you. In fact, he wants, he's after you for a different reason. He wants to claim your soul so that, not so that you will live, but so that you will die a spiritual death and live with him in hell. That's why the devil is after you. And as I've said it over and over throughout this series, he will do whatever it takes to get to you. He will do whatever it takes. He will use all these strategies and he will find the one that works best on you and he will use it and he will leverage it in any way he can. He will use, he will blind the minds of unbelievers. He will get you to doubt God's word. He will get you to doubt God's goodness. He will discourage you. He will twist and pervert God's word and spawn all these false religions and get you to believe in it. He will seek to divide and seek to distract. That's how precious your soul is to the devil, that he will employ all these tactics to take you down. Now that you understand a little bit more about the devil's playbook, stand firm, as Paul said, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. First, read your Bible. Don't just read it. Study it. Know it. Understand it so that when Satan shows up disguised as an angel of light, you'll be able to spot it right away. You'll know right away because you know the word of God. Second, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And you can be still passionate about the things you're passionate about, but be most passionate about Jesus And he will keep us united as a church. And finally, don't let him distract you. Begin today. Make some some commitments today about what you're going to do with your cell phone. Make a commitment today about what you're going to do about all these things that entice and tempt you. Don't lose focus. Keep your eyes on him. Because indeed, as Spurgeon said, your soul is precious to God. 
Well, let's close our time in prayer. You know, I just want to say one thing before we pray. Some of you, I believe that there, some of you have been coming to our church, maybe just recently, been coming for a while. Some of you have been watching online. I don't know where you're at, but I'm so glad you're out there. But some of you who are watching have yet to make a commitment to Christ. You come and you think, oh, this is really nice. I love the music. Oh, I like the message. Oh, people are really nice. But you have yet to make a commitment to Christ. You are most vulnerable. You are most vulnerable because the devil would love to snatch you away. Don't let him do that. There is a devil and there is a real God. And as I said, he loves you more than anything in the world. Today, why don't you tell God that you want to give your life to him? In fact, right now, just say this to him. Dear, dear God, I believe in you. I believe Jesus was your son. I believe he came to planet earth and he died on a cross for my sins and he was raised from the dead. Today, I give you my life. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and make me the, the person you want me to be and help me to follow you from this day forward all the days of my life. And thank you because of this commitment I'm making to you. Thank you that one day when I die, I'll go to live with you in heaven. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Say that prayer to him if you haven't already. Make that commitment to him if you haven't already. And if you did, you will be and you are a child of God from this day forward. And you'll be set free. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for all the strategies that you have outlined in the scriptures for us that we might know what our enemy is up to. Now, Lord, it's up to us. We know what he's about. We know he's about dividing. We know he's about distracting. We know he's about twisting your word. Father, help us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Help us to become people of your word. Help us to know your word, not just read it, maybe on a Sunday, but help us to read it every day that we might know it so that we might be able to recognize when the devil comes to us dressed as light. Help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit. And that's something that we need to do every day, constantly, continuously throughout the day. Help us be filled with your spirit so that we're not controlled by the flesh, so that we won't be angered by this political message or by that political viewpoint or by this or that. And that can lead to all kinds of divisions. God, fill us with your spirit so that we can have harmonious, loving relationships with our husbands and wives and with our children, with the people in our small group, with people we disagree with. Lord, unify our church. Continue to make our church a beacon of light because they see that we're unified around the central message of Jesus. And Father, help us to resist all those distractions. Father, speak to us this week about how we can begin to curb and curtail the distraction that our cell phone causes. I know I need to work on that one. 
And Father, for all the other things, forgive us when we've strayed away from pure devotion to you. Bring us back to you, Lord. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for thinking our souls are so precious that you would love us with your son, Jesus. Help us to follow you, God. We love you so much. This is our prayer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.